Year after year, one of the most consistent items on my do something list is to have fun with fashion. Exploring my personal style has added more joy to my everyday life and helped me feel more like myself on the regular. However, I have found that there are some brands I would love to explore more, but they are out of my typical price range, or there's the it item that I would love to try out, but without the commitment of keeping it. Enter Armoire. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, you can build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic personalized closet. The styles show up at your door in as little as two days. Then when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out for more new to you styles. I just did my quiz and have selected a few dresses for the summer from Bowdoin, one of my favorite brands that I can't typically afford. And I also got a double-breasted black blazer from a new-to-me designer, a classic item that I have been on the hunt for but too scared to commit to until I know it's the one. For you expecting mamas, for those who are working or those who are style-obsessed, who want to switch out your wardrobe with quality pieces without the designer prices, check out this woman-owned company that has your style and your sustainability in mind. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash progress. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash progress to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to About Progress, a podcast devoted to ordinary people who are striving to improve themselves, overcome obstacles, and make something special of their lives, all while maintaining a healthy balance. In short, people who know life is about progress, not perfection. Hello, and thank you so much for listening in today. It's been boiling here in the San Francisco East Bay, but we are still loving summer and having school off, and I hope you are as well and get some good vacation time. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Audible is about the only way I can get through a book these days without falling asleep, unless it's a real page turner. Next on my list is Daring Greatly by Brene Brown, which many of you have recommended. With Audible, you pay $14.95 a month and get a free audiobook of your choice, and additional books are 30% off. Audible has offered our listeners a free 30-day trial, which you can find at audibletrial.com slash aboutprogress. I've included that link in the show notes for you, but again, that's audibletrial.com slash aboutprogress. You can find my show notes on my website, aboutprogress.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Facebook at About Progress. Let me tell you about our interview today with Mark Lukacs. 
He is the author of My Lovely Wife in the Psych Ward. It is brilliantly written. It's so heartfelt. And and I know I told you I can barely get through a book these days, but guys, I, I could not put this one down. So I highly recommend you buy it as soon as you can. It is a life changer book. Mark and I talk about what led up to his wife, Julia's three stays in the psych ward and her diagnosis with bipolar disorder. But we spend most of our time talking about how Mark and Julia worked together to preserve their marriage and to build up a new foundation for their family, one based on courage, not fear. They have so many reasons to have founded their family on that fear, and they resisted that, and they are so persistent in their love and commitment to each other. And Mark is so honest about the struggles that he faced as he tried to care for Julia during those really hard patches. I want Mark to have as much airtime as possible, so let's turn to our interview together. Hi, I'm here with Mark. Hi, Mark. Hey, Monica. How are you today? I'm so great. I'm so excited to have you on. And I was wondering if you could start by giving our listeners an introduction. Sure thing. Uh, So my name is Mark, and I live in the Bay Area in California uh, with my wife, Julia, and our son, Jonas, who just turned five about two weeks ago. Um, Actually, exactly two weeks ago. Oh, and also with our bulldog, Goose. Yeah, and I teach high school. I teach high school history, but I'm also the author of a book that's called My Lovely Wife in the Psych Ward, because Julia has bipolar disorder, and um, she's actually been hospitalized several times, and the book kind of chronicles how the arrival of her mental illness was really unexpected for us, um, and it really kind of, it really had redefined our lives and our marriage, and sort of how we tried to navigate that together so that it wasn't something that tore us apart but instead it could be something that we could still have, like coexist within our family dynamic. And we should say that you also wrote a viral article in 2015 on the same topic. Can you tell us about that article? Yeah, sure thing. So I've actually been writing about this for a few years. Uh, mm-hmm. The first time I wrote publicly about uh, Julia and my relationship was actually was in 2011 when oh, I, I wrote see. a column in, uh, I wrote an article in the Modern Love column in the New York Times. Okay. Um, and that was kind of all about trying to support her through her first hospitalization and subsequent depression. Um, then in 2000, so she got sick in 2009. I wrote in 2011. In 2012, she had her second hospitalization, and that's where we really had to work as a family about what this thing was and how we were going to make it through. Um, and then I wrote an article in Pacific Standard, called My Lovely Wife in the Psych Ward, that, um, as you said, it, it, it went pretty far across the Internet. I think I remember my editor emailing me throughout the first day being like, it's a 250,000 reads, and then, like, oh my gosh. two hours later, it's a 500,000 reads, and we ended up actually with, like, I think it was about 4 million within the first week, which was crazy, oh right? My like, Yeah, totally unexpected. Um, I had worked on that article for over a year, and by the time it came out, I was so relieved. I was almost just like, uh, I can just, like, post this on Facebook, and, like, a couple of friends will say, nice work, and that's it. And instead, like, my email was blowing up. Um, I was able to connect with a literary agent and a publisher, and that all led to me getting a book deal with HarperCollins. And I worked on the books for the last two-plus years. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, just earlier this month, it came out. And it, uh, to be honest, it feels like a relief because it's I been bet. a huge, huge undertaking 
for the last few years. Even writing a blog post alone takes so much time or any kind of article. So I can't imagine writing a book and how hard that would be. It's so beautiful, though. Your work really paid off. I am. I, I, I read it, obviously. It was it's just so honest. I love how you depict what happened in your family and the truth behind it. We have a lot we could talk about with the content of your book. And I would like you to set the scene for us with what did happen with Julia and her eventual diagnosis with bipolar and her rounds with psychosis. But I want our listeners to buy your book <laughs> and I want okay. them to read your book because it's, it's the best. So okay, while we're just going to so give much. a, oh, it's so good. So why we're going to give a glimpse into that, I'm just telling the listeners, why we're going to give a glimpse into that, you really need to read the book. And then we'll spend more time on you, Mark. So can you first set that scene for us and tell us what sure led thing. up to the first time Julia experienced psychosis and kind of um, what came from that? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing to know is that Julia and I met when we were really young, we were 18. It was literally the first week of college. And um, we were dating within the first month and mm-hmm. stayed together all through college and, you know, got got engaged one year after graduation, married two years after graduation, moved to California together to set up kind of this new life and honestly felt like we were living a fairy tale, you know? Yeah. Um, she, she's super successful in her career. Um, loved her work, was always getting rave reviews, and I was teaching high school and just felt like we were really living the sweet life. And then um, in 2009, when we were 27, we'd been married for three years. She, you know, like, there was a 2008 recession. The startup she was working with at closed, so she got a new job. <clears throat> and basically, that new job immediately was something different for her, where, like, she was more hesitant and I never, like, I, I, she always exuded confidence, and she was, like, clearly um, second-guessing herself. Mm-hmm. And she was asking me for a lot of input on things, but she doesn't usually do because we're in such different fields, you know? Mm-hmm. But she would send me emails to proofread that she was sending to her boss. And these are, like, pretty basic emails, you know, just, like, a couple-sentence check-ins that she would spend hours working on and uh, rereading and overthinking. And so... Of course, she was falling behind on her work, and that made her more stressed out. And then she'd overthink how to catch up and then fall further behind. So it became this, like, really vicious spiral that uh, got really bad really quickly. And uh, she stopped eating. Mm-hmm. She stopped sleeping. And then she went, as you said, she had a psychotic break. And I didn't even know what that was. Like, um, I didn't know what it was for someone to be experiencing delusions and like, I just never seen anybody like that. And then I really out of nowhere, Julia really was, you know, I'd, I'd try to get her to go to sleep at night and I'd try to stay up with her, but I eventually would always fall asleep. And then I'd wake up and she's like pacing around our room, just kind of like ranting, you know, all mm-hmm. over and over about different things. Um, and it was really scary. She was really fixated on these different religious visions and, um, you know, we, was, I don't know, like, it's hard, even though I wrote about it, even, even like, every time I kind of re-remember it, it becomes hard to just articulate just truly how terrifying it felt to see, you know? Um, because and, you didn't and let know me what it was. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we, I mean, we're like, you know, we're 
college-educated believers in medicine and science and all that stuff. So I'm thinking, like, all right, we'll just take her to the hospital, and they'll, like, give her a pill, and it'll all be fine. And Mm -hmm. not really knowing um, what psychiatry fully entailed, you know? Not really really appreciating the enormous complexity of the human mind and that there aren't – it's like if you break an arm, you know – like, I didn't want to stigmatize mental illness, and so I would think, like, oh, if someone goes to therapy, that's just, like, taking, you know, like, medicine for a headache. That's no big deal. But I didn't realize that medicine for a headache tends to work pretty quickly, but mood-altering uh, medication and antipsychotic medication takes a really long time, and it's kind of a guessing game as to which pill is going to work and which pill isn't going to work. So Julie was hospitalized, and they kept her in the psych ward for 23 days, which is a really long time wow. to be in there. Um, you know, most I, I saw a lot of people come and go over that time period. And then they finally let her out when she was starting to, when the psychosis was being treated. And then instead of the psychosis, it was now left with this very deep suicidal depression where she really didn't have much interest in doing anything. You know, it was really hard to get her out of bed in the morning. Um, and that lasted for a really long time, too. She was in an outpatient program. And most patients, when we checked in, they were like, yeah, most patients are in this program for like three to four weeks to kind of get them back off their feet, you know, after they were in the hospital to get them before they can get back out into the real world working. And Julie was in that program for nine months. Mm-hmm. So it was like, it was just so long and so intense and so uh, tough, you know? Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and that's just episode one, yeah. you know? Um, and, and then, uh, as we would later face, she was hospitalized a second time when our son Jonas was five months old, and then a third time when he was two and a half years old. And they looked pretty similar each time mm-hmm. with, like, rapid, intense onset of psychosis, um, followed by... It's like really deep depression. So that's kind of been our last five, seven years. I mean, thankfully we're in a place where Julia's doing great. She hasn't been hospitalized in two and a half years. Things feel like they're going really well. But it took a lot of work. It took a lot of work for us to take something so traumatizing and so unsettling and put it in the right context for how we interacted with each other and how we... um, sort of like plan for the future and remember the past. Um, yeah. And that's kind of where we are now. And, you know, we, we did say like your book goes into so much more detail with this as well. Yeah. Right. Right. I, yeah. I think it's okay to give the basic overview of the timeline, you know, yeah, you have to, to me, the real heart of the matter is like how Julie and I Mm -hmm. try to repatch our marriage, you know, like there's a book that's, certainly like it's certainly about mental illness but i really think at the core it's a book about family and it's about how Mm -hmm. we how we navigate crisis with the people we love and you know i loved the quote that's on the cover of your book um someone's review where they say like this i don't have the book right in front of me but they say like this book ripped my heart out and then lovingly sewed it back into place um something to that uh, degree. Yeah. I, I found that to be the case too. And like you said, it was, it wasn't just a story about mental illness for sure. It was your story as well, but definitely the story about your family and this marriage. And, right. and that's what I loved about it. So you, you explain this a little bit, but for those listeners who aren't familiar, what, what is psychosis? And you described what it looks like 
for Julia specifically, but from your rounds of it, I wanted to know what you have to look for now. Sure. So psychosis is like kind of a collection of symptoms that can include, this is another thing I discovered about mental health. It's like, it's really about symptom recognition. And if you have six of the following 10 symptoms, you might have this diagnosis. So psychosis is generally like really rapid thinking, like uh, kind of get stuck on one train of thought and can't really break it. Um, often it's a paranoid type of thinking, you know, like psychosis often is like, the, like fear that someone's out to get you um, and can lead to delusional thinking. Um, some of the more common delusions are like that the FBI is trying to surveil you or your own like the Truman Show and everyone's watching you mm-hmm. um, or that you might have uh, re- actually, religious delusions are pretty common in psychosis as well. Um, the you're, Because your metabolism is kind of going, 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 you don't really need much sleep, and um, you don't really need much food either. And so for Julia, her psychosis is actually what I've learned is it's really attached to uh, her diagnosis is bipolar. And in bipolar, you go between, there's two extremes. One is the manic phase and one is the depressed phase and the depressed phase is where you know you feel really depressed for most people the manic phase is actually really fun where you're like out partying and spending a lot of money and doing really cool adventurous things but for julia her manic phase goes directly to psychosis um so unfortunately both sides of her Mm. bipolar are really unpleasant to experience yeah now what to look out for for her and i um Without a doubt, the biggest trigger for Julia is lack of sleep. So we really put a tremendous priority on a good night's sleep in our household. Mm -hmm. And um, we'll adjust our schedules and lifestyles accordingly, you know, as needed. Um, Besides this, her her onsets have often been around times of high stress at work. And so we try to pay attention to work stress and, and She's actually in a job right now that feels really balanced and allows her to prioritize her health, so that's awesome. Yeah. And I would say the last interesting thing for us with her psychosis is that all three of her psychotic breaks occurred during the fall, and I'm not sure why, Hmm. but we've always kind of become a little bit more Eastern as far as our uh, medicine approach in that, like, the cyclical nature nature might be seasonal, you know? Um, uh-huh. So, like, right now, right, we're talking at the end of May. Shalene and I are not especially concerned about a relapse right now just because we've never had one this time of year. It just doesn't – it's not something we especially worry about. But, like, when we get to September and then even into October, there's going to be this kind of unspoken, um, heightened awareness that, all right, we're back in the fall, but um, – let's really make sure we're making the right choices around her health and um, being a little bit more patient with each other and just like putting that extra effort in mm-hmm. to not let things escalate, you know? So is it better or worse to have that in your mind, you know, as you, as you approach each fall? Uh, it's tough because, you know, it's like we don't want to talk about it because that kind of emboldens it, right? Mm-hmm. But um, it also makes it a lot easier than you know, right now we don't have to worry too much. I think if she had three psychotic breaks in different parts of the year, it would feel even that much more unpredictable. Mm, I see but that. there's 
this like slight degree of more predictability, which makes it a little bit easier in the off months, but definitely a little bit more nerve wracking in the on months. So I'm thinking about, you talked about how this book, the center, the heart of it is, um, is how you were working to save your marriage and to save your family. And you talk a lot about how you at times, uh, successfully and unsuccessfully at different points, um, act as a supporter to your wife and care for yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, so let's start back to, uh, before all of this happened, you talk about how you were more of a free spirit before this change in your life. So how, how have you changed, um, from, I don't know how, do you guys have like a term that you use in your family, like pre, pre, do you say pre 2009 or pre sickness? Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So pre sickness, what was was, it like? Yeah, I was a, I'm from the East coast. I'm a surfer and like I was into punk rock and I was like kind of dressing a little radical in college and just sort of the dude who was in college to learn and experience um, and just sort of figure out what I wanted from life. Yeah. As compared to Julia, who was like, she had an internship before getting into college, let alone yeah. in college, you know, where she's like interning every summer with these major uh, advertising firms throughout the world. And I'm like literally going back to this little beach town in Delaware to surf and wait tables and play beach volleyball. And so when we got married, it was, it really, that dynamic continued where Julia was much more the, you know, let's plan, let's be responsible, let's, let's kind of prior, you know, let's save money for our future. Um, and I was like, let's, let's go do something cool. We moved to California to go experience adventures. Let's go do them. Yeah. And, you know, that works for us. Yeah. There's a really good complimentary situation because, and then we had a lot of fun and we were still really responsible in doing so. So like when crisis hit, we had a pretty good savings build up because Julia had prioritized that for us, you know? Yeah, that's true. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, and then when it was a weekend, we'd have fun things to do because I was kind of trying to gear up to have a good weekend. So um, so with that all being said, then she gets sick, right? And, like, mm-hmm. the planner, organizer um, is, you know, in the psych ward. I was only able to visit her 90 minutes a day. And for the rest of the day, I was basically trying to figure out what life was going to look like. You know, I was... Mm-hmm. And on one hand, I'm trying to, like, process and and speculate of just, just how long this is going to last, you know? I mean, I at one point even thought that I might be, that Julia might never get better, and she might be stuck like this forever, and this is going to be our dynamic forever, you know? Um, but then on the other hand, I'm just trying to think of it as a day-to-day of, like, okay, like, I've got this one doctor. I need to try to get another doctor's opinion. How do I do that, you know? And, like... Mm-hmm. This is the hospital that the ER put her into, but is there a better facility that she needs to go to? And what's the long-term care going to look like? And what's so all these like real heavy logistics things, which 
I absolutely would have, like Julia would have taken the lead on those. Mm -hmm. But instead, I wasn't even just taking the lead. I was doing them completely solo. And I wasn't even consulting her about them because she was so fixated on what she was experiencing that, you know, I couldn't talk to her about plans like, you know, what to do about her job. And if I should take a medical leave to support her, I just had to make those decisions on my own. Mm. And so over the long term, what happened is our roles kind of flipped and we didn't really anticipate it, you know, because when Julia got better, she was all of a sudden like, that was the worst year of my life. And I really just want to have fun now. Like I earned it. I suffered. And now I'm going to just like enjoy myself. And I'm like, well, we got to be a little cautious here. We make sure you're seeing your doctor regularly and taking your medicine because if we push things too far, we could end up back at square one with another hospitalization and mm-hmm. it's going to be fall back on me to, to figure out all the logistics of that, you know? So I became like way more conservative um, as far as like what we could do in our lifestyle, you know? And that was like, that created a lot of tension between us because mm-hmm. we didn't recognize each other or ourselves. And it's like, how do you reconcile all this? How do you, how do you go and redefine how we, how we work together if, like, who we are has taken some pretty fundamental changes? So, so I think your question was like, yeah, your question at the core was like, what did I learn about myself? And I think what I learned is like, I've realized a, a capacity for organization that I didn't know that I had. Yeah. I like, it's so funny at work, people call me really organized. And I'm like, <laughs> are you kidding me? You know, like, if you had known me five, seven years ago, I was the guy who, like, you would walk into my classroom and my desk was stacked high with just junk, you know, like everything. I couldn't find it. I, I knew it was on the desk. I didn't know where, so I have to look for it, you know, and I was like, you know, I lose my keys all the time. And But now I, I think I learned, like, that, yeah, I can be more organized and organization can take the stress out of things, which is really helpful. Yeah. I was wondering why you're talking about that. I'm sure this is part of you that you can recognize the good that came from that shift in your own uh, personality, but I'm sure uh, you had to mourn the old you. And and did you go oh, through that? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I wa- First off, I was mourning three things. I was mourning Julia oh, yeah. herself, right? Like the I was afraid. Her. Yeah, the old her. I was mourning our old dynamic. And then, yes, absolutely, I was mourning kind of the way that I was and um, this kind of like I I didn't ever really have to work hard to be happy uh, a lot of people I'm a pretty naturally upbeat happy-go-lucky kind of guy yeah and I I didn't know so much work it can take to maintain that happiness you know yeah so like I guess I kind of was mourning like the loss of this carefree side of living, you know? But at the same time, you know, it's interesting. We haven't talked yet about being a parent. And I know, obviously, you're a parent. Um, yeah. I think I think a lot of what I did was in many ways like becoming a parent because I felt like Julia was, you know, whether this is arrogance or realistic, I felt Julia was dependent upon me, you know, in the way that our children can be dependent upon us, you know? And so... I think mm-hmm. knowing that you have the weight of someone else's life that you're responsible for, you kind of got to grow up quick, you know? Mm-hmm. 
And so I recognize a lot of how I operate as a parent is similar to how I operated as a caregiver with Julia. Um, and, and since you've had these years of growth of learning what this uh, new life looks like for both of you, how has that dynamic changed? Because I know initially you talked about how when you took on that caretaker role, you had to make the big decisions. You had to be the one in control. Um, but how has that shifted now um, with, w- within your marriage dynamic? You know, I think that what Julie and I realized when we swapped roles and then tried to kind of revert to the old ones or even felt stuck in these new roles, we we became a lot more aware of the old roles. You know, like I think mm-hmm. we kind of lacked the self-awareness of how we operated together. And um, by seeing things so differently, it's like, hey, this isn't who we are. This is how we used to be. And then most importantly, a lot of kind of question like, okay, well, how, do we like how things work? Like just because they're, just because we went through this crisis and had to change things, does that mean we actually really loved the old way? Or did the old way need some fine-tuning anyway? Mm-hmm. And I think that in doing so, what we both recognize is that we needed a little bit more equality in our relationship, yeah. um, that we needed to feel like we were both uh, invested in similar ways and in ways that we could appreciate, and also that we both listen to each other in similar ways, you know, and I, I think that, like, I just think that before, it's not that there was, like, a clear, like, imbalance between us, but that we weren't, um, like, it, it wasn't, like, a static imbalance. It wasn't, like, Julia called all the shots and I just went along with them, or vice versa. It was more like, you know, in some circumstances, we just defaulted that Julia was in the lead, and in others, we just defaulted that I was in the lead, and we kind of questioned those defaults and we said, how do we actually want to operate? And, and like our answer was we want to operate in a way where it's more of a team, you know, like a, more of a team collaborative approach. Well, and that took a lot of growth, like you said. And, yeah. you know, I wanted to talk about after that first round of psychosis and, and how you were caring for Julia, it seemed like initially mm-hmm you thought you could fix her and you thought that, well, you took on the problem like you could and that it was your responsibility to fix everything. And I wanted to know how that went for you and also the effects that it had on your own mental health. I anticipated that I was going to be the one who figured everything out Mm -hmm. and that I was going to discover some detail or facet of her illness that would help unlock the mystery of what was going on and like, voila, everything would be better. And, um, again, I didn't really have an understanding of the human mind and its complexity. I thought that, um, like, you know, you sort of this vision of like being the one who's there for the people you love. I thought I was going to be that one. And I did not fully appreciate just how powerless I actually was. Mm-hmm. Like if this was happening, on its own terms, and it did not care. Yeah, it maybe made it a little bit more pleasant if, like, I was really trying to make Julia feel loved, but that wasn't going to fix her, you know? That was just going to make the days more bearable. There was way more work around actually, like, getting her out of the psychosis and getting her out of the depression. And so that, like, sense of powerlessness was really, really hard for me to accept because 
I'm a pretty active person. I'm a, I'm a solution-oriented person. I don't like to just sit there and kind of like talk about problems and set like you identify a problem and now you go and try to fix it, right? Mm-hmm. And so to sit there and feel like I was even struggling to identify the problem, but then regardless of whether it was identified or not, there wasn't really much that I could do except sort of just like sit there and wait it out. That took like a huge amount of humility um, and acceptance for me, which mm-hmm. was not easy. And I kind of put myself in the situation that forced humility, to be honest with you. Like, I, um, as I said, I'm an active person and I, I surf a lot. So we were living by the beach and I would go surfing in really big waves kind of to force myself to, like, be humbled by the power of the ocean, you know? Yeah. And then I also got into endurance sports a little bit. Like, I did a really long bike ride down the coast of California. Yeah. And then I actually ended up doing a triathlon. And all these things were, in a way, were to, like, really drive home just how small I am, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. how this is such a big world with so many huge forces and I am so tiny and small in the context of all of it. And it, it, it helped, that helped me a ton with just sort of accepting the, the role that I could and could not play around Julia's health. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the words that kept coming to my mind while I was uh, reading your book was loyalty and, you don't mm-hmm. you definitely are a loyal person and we also see though how loyalty can come at a cost uh, mm-hmm. sometimes and and for you that was the case you talk about this your own depression that you went through after the first round of psychosis the anger the resentment mm-hmm. the sadness that you dealt with and mm-hmm. now in hindsight what do you think were the roots of these reactions that you had while she's re- in recovery um, that's when those, all of those emotions came out. Sure. Yeah. So this is a great question. First off, yes, I absolutely think I'm a pretty loyal person. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of like, I don't know, there's just a couple of parts of my life that I, I believe in and I stick with them, you know? Um, as far as when Julia got out of her first episode, I sunk into my own depression. I was pretty, I don't know, I may have been suffering with post-traumatic stress disorder a little bit. Yeah. We did a road trip to my brother's wedding, and I was like, I couldn't get over this fixation that we were going to actually be killed in some way mm-hmm. on the road trip, whether it was like a car crash or like someone was going to come into our tent one night because we camped while we were driving across the country. I'm like, yeah. if they were going to come get us. You know, it was like really stressful time, you know? Um and I think that all came to a head at that time because I had to suppress so much of my experience while Julia was sick, you know? Like, yeah. she was so fragile and so consumed by her psychosis and depression. The last thing I wanted to do was add any other burden to her experience. So I just pretended that it was no big deal for me. I pretended that this was like, Oh, whatever, any old day, you know? And so, mm-hmm. like, if we're walking along and Julia just stops and all of a sudden starts sobbing and begging me to let her kill herself, I would just have to pretend that was no big deal. And even though that's, mm-hmm. like, one of the most gut-wrenching things you can experience in life, um, I just kind of had to swallow it. 
And so after ignoring, I don't want to say ignoring, but certainly after um, compartmentalizing those feelings for so long, when Julia did come out of her depression and I saw her as being much more secure and like resilient than she had been before, I think my subconscious was like, all right, man, it's time to let all this stuffed up, you know, anxiety and fear it's coming all out now, ready or not, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's basically what happened. It just kind of erupted out. And the challenge was, is like I said, Julia was now the carefree one because she's like, yeah. I just had a terrible year. I just want to have fun. And I'm like, you know, moping and depressed. And she just couldn't get why I was feeling so bad. And I couldn't get why she couldn't put a little energy into making me feel better, you know? Mm-hmm. And so we, it, it was really tough. That was actually the, the sort of like tragic irony of it all is that the time when our marriage was the hardest and probably the time when I was the most unhealthy and unstable in my own mindset was after she got better, you know? Mm-hmm. We just have this side to our human nature where we have these expectations we don't realize we have when we're trying to do something that is good and loyal. And that expectation mm-hmm. is to be recognized for it and, and to be, to be seen. And it seems like that's was part of the struggle for you while she is doing better is when you are doing worse. And part of it might have been because she was consumed by her, her troubles and then consumed by trying to live and be, you know, to rejoice in the new life she had again, that she didn't see you the way that you needed that to happen, which is, you know, it's, it's human nature on both sides of it. But I I feel like you learned a lot about expectations and, and how to have the right expectations going into loving someone else. And what do you think about that? I think that's a great analysis of all this. I think you like, you hit it spot on, like at the core what I wanted was validation, right? I want, as mm-hmm. you put it, I wanted to be seen. I wanted to know that the many sacrifices I had made to support Julia, that she saw them and appreciated them, you know? And on the one hand, that is a very, like, needy thing to feel. But on the other hand, that's a very authentic thing to feel, you know? Yeah. Like, I'm not, I'm not ashamed that after a year of caregiving... I needed a little, like, high five, thanks for all the hard work, man, you know? Like, you needed some return that, that, empathy. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, and that has, you get around expectations, you know? Um, that It's funny, because, like, at the core, a lot of this is, like, we're going to, I'm sure, get into stuff like self-care and all that other stuff. But, like, a lot of being healthy, you have to make inherently selfish choices. And when I say selfish, that's usually a pejorative of when you're being overly focused on the self. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's a balanced degree of focusing on the self where you yeah. you carve out important time for yourself to do things that you love, to be responsible to no one else besides yourself. You can certainly throw that out of balance, right? But yeah. like, I think that what I needed was a, like, just a balanced sense of like acknowledgement of me and myself and who I was. Um, and I think that's okay. You know, like I don't, I don't want to sit around and think that like everything I do 
if if it's not validated, I'm going to go mope around about it. You know, like mm-hmm. oh, I cooked dinner, you didn't say anything. That's so mean. You know, I don't I don't want yeah. that. That that that's I think out of balance. But where it's like, you know, when I put a lot of I put a lot of love and labor into this thing. Um, I, I I would like to feel appreciated. I think that's a reasonable expectation to have in a marriage, because I think most of all, when you have an expectation, you end up holding yourself to fulfilling that expectation for these someone else, right? So, mm-hmm. like, at the same time that I'm wanting to be seen and validated more, I think I've become a lot more deliberate around seeing and validating Julia more. You know, and like honoring the, the the work she puts in every day in her career. You know, and not taking that for granted. Um, or the the way she chooses to spend her time on the weekend and the different activities. It's just like I'm, I I certainly not certainly make a lot of mistakes and have a lot of times where it's inadequate. But I really think that I put a lot more effort into it um, because I know how much I want it. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. So how do you two navigate that now? What has the growth been? You know, you talked about the growth in a lot of ways, but how has that grown for you too? I just think we've really grown to appreciate that, like, you know, Julia has this group of saying things that usually the way you feel about someone, um, they probably feel pretty similar about you, you know? And so, like, if I'm feeling, yeah, it really is. It's a really great observation. I think it's really rare where you have someone who is, like, thinks things are so great and, and someone thinks the exact opposite, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's more common where you're like, ooh, there's a problem here and I'm not, I'm not feeling respected. And the other person's thinking, I'm not feeling respected. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the solution is to actually, like, do the thing that you want to happen to you. I think that's really been what our approach has been. So if we're, like, bickering about something and we both feel like we're being mean, well, then... The thing we want is that someone's nice. So it's just a matter of who's going to be the first person to to do something nice to the other, to kind of stop this bickering and uh, and try to put it behind us, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I think that's really been the big insight for the two of us. It's just like recognize what you want and then try to offer that to the other. Because it's so much more likely you're going to end up getting what you want that way. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Yeah. And you know yeah. the other the other side to it is this fine balance that you mentioned of self care and that how that has to yeah. that has to be present too. So let's talk about oh, what that absolutely yeah. T- yeah. So tell us what what that was like for you how how you learned that importance and what you do now to make sure that is an important foundation to you. Yeah. So my I kind of assumed that like you when someone's in need you need like. You help them, and if you're not, you're letting them down. And so anything you're doing that's not in the clear, direct service of them is um, is not helping, you know? So I was literally spending almost – I remember the first day Julie was fully in the hospital all day. I was literally on the phone or the Internet, you know, 98% of the minutes that I was awake because wow. I was trying to find solutions. I did not leave my house. I did not leave, like, my screen because I was just trying to figure out what was going on. Um, maybe a better thing would have been for me to go for a run for an hour or take a nap because what happened was when I got to visit her that night, I was pretty burned out, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was burned out in the pursuit of trying to help her, 
But as a result, I was a less rested, less strong version of myself when I was actually in the room with her, you know, and that was when I needed to be at my best. And so it took a while, but I think that I eventually realized just how much I needed to make time in the day for myself. And again, I said before, like, I'm a pretty active person. That's mostly been around making space for me to go outside and do the adult version of playing, which is like, go for a trail run or go for a surf or go mountain biking or or those sorts of activities. I really like the outdoors. I'm not much of a gym guy. I'd rather bring, rather go outside and be in nature. Um, So I'm a high school history teacher. If I have a free period during the day, like maybe it's right before lunch or right after lunch, I'll actually go for a run during the school day because I can grade papers at 10 o'clock at night, but I can't go trail running at Mm -hmm. 10 o'clock at night, you know? Um, And I actually have grown to, you know, like not be ashamed to walk across campus in my running gear for my colleagues and my students to see because my hope is what they're seeing is a guy who's taking a mental health break and taking a physical health break and saying, you know what, I've got a job to do. I'm going to get it done. I need to go and refresh my mind and my body first so that I can do it the best that I can, you know? And I I, I think I would have been that engaged and even insistent upon taking care of myself had I not been thrown into this situation where I just, like, didn't take care of myself at all, you know? You saw the flip side. You knew what the flip side was of just... Yeah, you know, it was terrible. I mean, I just, like, sit around the house in sweatpants and, like, eat junk food and not want to do anything all day. I mean, it felt terrible, you know? And, like, Mm -hmm. I know there's a lot of days where I have an hour to go running. I don't feel like going running. And that first 10 minutes is really hard. But the rest of the 15 minutes feels amazing. And then, but it's, like, for the four hours afterwards, it feels even better. So it's like, it's always, always worth it. I never regret going for a run, but there's so many times where I regret having, you know, eating that cupcake just because I was kind of feeling bad and wanted something sweet to feel immediate little sugar high. Yeah. Or, um, you know, stand on the couch for an extra hour. You know, and I'm not trying to like turn this into like some exercise pep talk, but I am saying that like, for me, that's what's my feel good. Yeah. And I need to make time in my day for that feeling of release. And I know that everyone has their own ways of finding that. You know, I have friends who are like huge meditators and that's their, that's their thing. Or like mm-hmm. I have some students who sew a lot and that's their way of processing. And like whatever form, go for it, you know, but just absolutely make the time for yourself because you otherwise get swept away by the busyness of life. And it can, it's very easy to find yourself feeling busy. You know, I feel like a lot of people when I ask them, how are you doing? The most common answer I get is I'm so busy, (laughs) you know, everyone's busy. Everyone's busy. And like, I get it. There's only 24 hours a day. So make choices that can help you declutter a little bit, you know? That's really been the biggest lesson I've learned about how to take care of myself. And, you know, I wondered about writing about about all this and talking about it mm-hmm. and how that relates to um, processing it all and mm-hmm. uh, also helping the healing process. 
Yeah, the writing was hard, you know, like, um, when I go write, you, you were saying it's hard to write a blog post, right? And it is. It's hard to organize your thoughts, but it, for me it was really hard because I had to go and basically confront some of the hardest memories of my life and, and really stare them in the eye and really um, re-experience them to its fullest because I didn't want... I didn't like I I wanted the memoir to be authentic, you know, so I wanted the moments to feel real. And in order to write it real, I had to basically go and relive it. And that was so hard. Yeah, it was. (laughs) Sounds a little bit sadistic to be honest. Let's relive the worst days of my life. Yeah, exactly. I I teach high school all day. I come home, be a dad, be a husband, put our son to bed, and then be like, all right. Now it's time to go into the office and try to write this thing and deal with these these tough memories. But like, as hard as it is, there's no question about it that it's allowed me to take control. You know, like I think that in general, either you run the narrative or the narrative runs you. Mm. And so, literally, I was writing. But like, whether it's through therapy, that's a great way to process as well, mm-hmm. or writing, like. You're putting yourself back in the driver's seat of how these memories feel, you know? Um, and you don't have to feel victimized to the trauma that you've experienced, you know? Like, it, at least that's how it felt for me. That although I had some horrible flashbacks of what we've gone through, like, the more that I've had to confront them, the more I've accepted them, the less traumatized I've been by them. And so the writing process was deeply, deeply therapeutic. You know, when people say therapeutic, you, I think they expect it's going to be like putting aloe gel on where it's like, you know, immediately feels good and it only ever feels good. But I think what a lot of people don't recognize is like therapy is super hard. Mm-hmm. You have to pick it a lot of old wounds and reopen them and like do a lot of really big, tough digging in order to get that balm soothing feeling you know and like so that's the thing like yes the writing was hard but it was it was the process I had to go through in order to make peace with what had transpired for us there's this recurring theme in what you've been talking about too is this life lesson of choosing the better part doesn't mean it's going to Mm -hmm. be easier it will Mm -hmm. lead to more happiness though and I think that's what you're Mm -hmm. left you know one of your main takeaways is doing the harder part is, you know, is the better part. And it w- you will be yeah. better for making those hard decisions and going through the muck and hard, you know, and difficult times. It, and it will, in the end, make you better. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, the, I was a friend who described me as an extremist, and I had never really thought of myself that way. I was like, I'm not that extreme. But then, like, the more he listed stuff, I was like, Okay, I guess you're right. Like, I've never drank alcohol before. That's kind of an extreme choice. I've never drank coffee. I go on, like, 15-mile trail runs. I do, like, I, I push it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that, like, I I guess rather than call myself an extremist, I would say it's more of, like, I, I believe in the purity and nobility of certain concepts, and I want to pursue them, you know? Like, uh mm-hmm. It's maybe a little Aristotelian, but it's like, I do believe that there's this thing, this intangible thing called, like, love and justice and courage. And, like, 
that are really, really hard to aspire to. But if you do, you're going to find life as a heck of a lot more rewarding yeah. in the pursuit of it. Yeah. And, you know, you, you've talked about your son, Jonas, and yeah. I know I just have a few minutes left and it's hard to wrap up years <laughs> of, you know, love and, and lessons with him. So what I want to know about Jonas is mm-hmm. what do you hope he's learned from you throughout all of this? You know, he's still young, but, yeah. but kids know. Kids, they're so much wiser than I think we give them credit. And they they learn at such a young age. So I was hoping to know what you hope he has learned from you and what you hope uh, he's learned from Julia. And this can also be the future tense. What do you hope he will learn? Sure thing. Um, you know, Julia actually wrote this really beautiful letter to Jonas that she's going to present to him mm-hmm. when he's old enough to read the book. We don't know what age that is. Yeah. But so I can, I can, I know what she helps Jonas learns. And that is that she hopes he, he learns to not be afraid of the power of his mind. I don't know um, what his mind is going to be like and the depths of his joys and sadnesses, right? But like, mm. to not fear where it might take you, um, which I think is a really beautiful message because I think Julia has learned to not be afraid of where her mind has taken her, you know? Mm. Um, for incredible. me, what I... Yeah, it is. It's really amazing. And I think what I hope to teach her son is, um, oh boy, that's hard to distill down. But mm-hmm. I would say that um, that life is beautiful, you know? Like, there's this Italian movie called La Vita e Bella, Life is Beautiful. I actually have that phrase, La Vita e Bella, tattooed onto my wrists. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like a little reminder, a visual reminder to me of what I hold dear, which is like, there is so much hardness and um, sadness and pain in our world, you know? Like, the news does an amazing job of amplifying that, Mm -hmm. and it can become really, really easy to get sucked into all those negative things, and I don't don't fault anyone who does, you know? But um, that there is still so much happiness and joy that we are so privileged to experience and if you can really try to focus on those joys and even create the joys for yourself and for others, um, I think that's the example I'm trying to show him and how I'm raising him. Well, I think that is the perfect way to end this interview. Mark, this is just, cool. I've learned so much. Thank you for being on the show today. Hey, thank you so much for reaching out. I'm, I'm really glad we got to connect. Um, yeah, it was nice to talk. I'm sorry we had some spotty phone reception. I live in the woods, and so we don't have the best cell reception here, but it was so nice to talk. I did my best to assure Mark that our listeners are very forgiving, and they're used to people not having the best connection all the time, and I think he still came through so well. I hope you liked what you heard today from Mark. As a month has passed since we spoke, I thought a lot about what he said, and I am struck by Mark's resilience and willingness to keep trying and to see his own flaws and to not put himself on a pedestal. I really found that admirable, but I've also thought a lot about Julia. Her strength amazes me too. So I want to say a heartfelt thank you to both Mark and Julia for the courage to share a difficult story. And to help us all look past stigmas and to better grow into what life demands us to become. 
In the show notes, I've included Mark's website, Instagram, and where you can find his book. Please check him out. You won't regret it. I also have a picture of Mark and Julia's family with their son and their dog and a cover of the book that Mark kindly provided for me. My show notes are available on my website, aboutprogress.com. If you liked the show today, please subscribe. If you are a regular, please leave a review on iTunes and let me know what you think. Constructive feedback is always helpful. You have to do that on a desktop, I believe. I don't think it works on uh, iTunes on your phone. You can always nominate someone to be on the show as well by emailing me at packerprogress at gmail.com. And I have a final request for you that I talked about last week. I have a survey on my show notes that I need 200 people to fill out. So if you could take a few minutes to do that, I'd be so grateful. Those show notes, again, are on my website aboutprogress.com, and you can also access past episodes on there. That's it for today. Next Wednesday will be my monthly podcast based on a theme that I've been thinking about a lot lately. And next week's theme is you won't always make the cut. Stay tuned for that. And until then, take care of yourself. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.